What, if any, is the ongoing relevance of Britain's colonial history for issues of race, identity and citizenship? It's, it's a delight to be here. Um, it's a delight and a privilege to be at Cumberland Lodge. Um, as a person born and raised in a former colony, um, I always step into places in Britain and remind myself that these are places where I'm not supposed to be. Um, I wasn't expected to be. So it's always that kind of moment of personal satisfaction saying, we're here. Um, so I think that, that, that's something I want to really flag up. Um, now, Britain and empire and race is, is a complicated process. And I think um, John very nicely flagged up um, two things. Two, the two kinds of empires, the settler, settler colonies, of empire by settlement, where primarily British but also European populations went out and settled elsewhere, or colonized by force, um, whether it's Australia, South Africa, Canada, North America, etc. Um, and then there's the ones who were ruled because we conquered. Um, but I think when we take those clean strands, we forget certain things, or certain things are perhaps hidden. And when we talk about the empire, I think we don't mention two very crucial words that um, in some ways precede the empire, but run right through our history. And those two words are slave trade. Um, when we think of these settler colonies, the biggest one is not, you know, United States of America. Despite the various powers, European powers involved in colonizing, um, finally the 13 colonies that take shape as the initial um, republic and its, its growth, um, there was a massive series of massive population that was forcibly taken and resettled in this colony. So at one level, we talk about a settler colony. But that settler colony erases the reality of colonies by conquest from where populations were removed and displaced. When slave trade officially ends, the indentured populations from different parts, but also from Asia, are again spread through the colonies. And again, these are elided, these, these, these ideas are kind of papered over when we create these two clean categories. But we can't quite paper them over because when we get to Britain in 2018, somewhere all these legacies are carried within us. So um, I come from a part of India in the north, um, which was, um, very active in 1857 and was brutally punished following um, the victory of uh, the East India Company and the taking over by the British Crown of the region. And much of the poverty in the area, this is UP and Bihar, and much of the poverty in the region is a direct result of policies that followed 1860, that were part of the actions taken for decades 
for nearly a century till we get to 1947. And those, though that legacy isn't easy to get rid of. A large part of um, populations in the Caribbean who came as indentured labor also come from this part of the country, in, of, of India. Now, so I have, I grew up knowing these strange things. So there was the national story. We were, we had got independence. We fought for independence, all these wonderful terms. Uh, it always makes me laugh when I look at, look at sort of, when, when that wonderful slide with um, Orwell comes up. You know, well, well, we just kind of left. That's how British think of, you know, decolonization. We kind of got bored, you know. It's kind of like when you walk out of a movie midway because you can't be bothered. <laughs> just not, you know, Bradford just doesn't do it for me. It's a good count. Um, and it's that kind of a logic. But when you actually, really, Britain was thrown out. And I want to say Britain as, you know, we, we conceive of it today as where we stand. Um, so, but the, of course, the decolonizing narrative is that we fought, we won. But in my village were also these other stories. We won, but there are these families with gaps of people who went and who left and oftentimes didn't come back. Oftentimes, there is no record of what happened to them. Every so often, especially towards the 70s and 80s, we would get somebody who would come to the area looking for family ties. And then it would be a strange confrontation of history, legacy, race. Because Sometimes, when people came looking for histories, they looked slightly different from the average North Indian we were used to thinking about as us. Because we use that term mixed race, which we don't like. That happened. Heritage is mixed in the colonies, and we still haven't found terms to talk about it. You know, so what do we say, you know? Um, I had um, dinner last week with a friend of mine who's visiting from New York, and um, she said, well, in New York, I'm black. But when I come to Britain, everybody goes, oh, you're from somewhere in the Caribbean, because of my accent. I'm like, hmm, okay. And she's like, but I have an Indian grandmother. Where did we get? And I went, well, maybe Theresa May is right, citizens of nowhere. But... I, I know when she used it, it was an insult. It was a slight. It was a slur. But I don't think we need to think of it as that. I think in different ways, all of us who are whichever side of the line, the empire side or the, the colonized side, we are, we've been forced to be citizens of nowhere. Um, if we talk about the British, the white English community that suddenly receded into buntings and tea and Great British Bake Off, um, they are as much children of the empire as I am. The only difference is, and this is again where I think we need to have a, con a difficult conversation in Britain, the biggest and the only difference between being these children of the empire 
is if you are on the right side of the line, people who are supposed to be here, you benefited from the empire. We, we suffered. Um, now, this is a fairly contentious term, but I think um, Sundar and I think Rita said earlier, we should have difficult conversations. And there's one difficult conversation I would like to start here. We need to talk about reparations. And we need to talk about reparations not in kind of economic terms, and this is important. Um, and here I think, I don't agree with Shashi Tharoor very often, but um, the Indian writer and diplomat and politician, but here I do. It's not about reparations because there is no reckoning that will add up to the lives that were lost. They can't be. There is no way of, re of calculating the cultures that were lost and our stories and our traditions and our societies and all the different things. But reparations as an active political conscious decision of accepting that damage was done, that destruction was wrong. Shashi Tharoor talks about paying one rupee in reparations for colonizing India. I'm not completely convinced that's a great idea. I'd like a few other things. I'd like some of the material from the museum sent back. I'd like stuff from private collections sent back. Um, it's always very strange for me, for example, I spoke at British Library and I remember just going there going, I don't, I have not had access to this. And most of the people who study India don't have access to some of the greatest repository of Indian texts. Making that available, it would be reparations. And I think unless Britain actually thinks of that, and yes, it would force a very difficult conversation, and I'm with Rita, I think we need to have these difficult conversations. And I'm quite tired of saying, well, it, if we say this, it empowers the far right. It empowers the Nazis. It empowers Farage. It empowers Trump. No, actually, you know what? Farage got empowered when he got to the NBBC ten times a day. When people like Goodhart get unchecked op-eds. Where's the, we can talk freedom of debate, but, or speech, but where's my op-ed and the FT? And I think that's where we need to reframe this discussion. The conversation's difficult, but it's necessary. The conversation's uncomfortable, but it's uncomfortable for people who've been riding on privilege not just during the empire, but following its end. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. Thank you.